Hey, welcome to the first episode of this new podcast coming up next. I'm sure there's about 7 billion podcasts out there and we're a pretty small speck in a very large pool. So thanks for choosing this one. Uh, it's called Coming Up Next and I'm Alastair Marks for those of you who don't know me. I'm a, uh, I'm a filmmaker based in Melbourne in Australia and it's taken me roughly 10 years of working my way up to create a, you know, a really sustainable career. And now that I have found a small amount of success, I started to wonder and question and be all existential and stuff as you know, every good uh, philosophizing filmmaker would do about what it is that drives us as human beings to do what we do. You know, uh, what, what, what is it that inspires us to follow our dreams or ultimately to sweep them to the side? What is this passion that we hold in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds? And what are the lessons that I can learn from my peers now to drive me forward and, and, and further? Uh, each episode will be an intimate conversation between me and a colleague or a friend or a stranger. You know, people ranging from Molly Meldrum to Michaela Bannis to hell, my housemate, Nathan Wentworth. That's the first episode. <laughs> Thanks for coming on this journey with me and hopefully you feel uh, as inspired as I do. So without further ramblings, here is the first episode of Coming Up Next with Alastair Marks. Welcome to the first episode of Coming Up Next. Uh, this is a new podcast. My name's Alistair Marks. I'm here with Nathan Wentworth in the bedroom of my brother, actually, which is quite a fancy <laughs> studio um, that, we're, that we're doing this recording. And I guess the idea of this, uh, this podcast is to talk to people who are creative in some, some sort of spectrum uh, I've I've become quite fascinated in the last sort of little while about what it is that makes people do what they love doing and, um, you know, hitting a new decade in, in my life and starting to become a lot more philosophical about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. I guess I'm keen to find out pe uh, what it is that makes people who've been around in this industry for a while um, do what they do, you know, people who I've known for ages or, or don't really know that well. And I'm hoping and thinking that, you know, probably some other people may or may not find the same sort of topics interesting. So if you're listening to this now, um, thanks for tuning in. If you're listening to this at some point in the future, um, what's the future like? I guess the future, if you're listening to it, is actually now uh, because you're always <laughs> in now. <laughs> and just because it's the future for us doesn't mean it's the future for you. If this was simulcast somewhere in another country in a different time zone, then you've covered all the bases, I guess. Well, it could be the past, actually, because if someone was listening, if, if we put this up, like, in a few hours and someone was listening to it in LA, they'd actually be listening to it before we recorded it. Just blew my fucking mind. Yeah. So, you know, um, <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? We, we're creating things um, to give a bit of background. I'm here with... A, very good friend, uh, Nathan Wentworth, who's been working in the film industry for, what, 20 years? Uh, nearly, yeah. So maybe, what am I now, 30-something, 30 31, 2? Almost 32. 32. So it'd be like 16-odd, 17 years maybe. And, you know, we, we, we work in this industry that's essentially creating stories or moments in time that are relevant to the time period 
that then you know become markers in history i guess you know no matter how big or small they are these are things that you know when when we look at films from past decades they're very well defined or ingrained in the decade that or the time period that they were made you can actually learn a lot about eras through the films or the the arts that were relevant to that period of time and i was thinking this morning as i was in the shower about how you know where the podcasts now you know think about how many radio shows were made well, they used to do the you know radio shows instead of having movies and stuff they'd all television they'd sit around the the, the wireless and mm. people would tell stories and have little dudes clip-clopping on timber and making horse effects and crazy shit. Mm. And most of those will never be heard. Like, you know, most of that has sort of been confined to that. That was in the moment there when you listened to it and then it was gone. Mm. Um, whereas now we can record a podcast in, in brother's my brother's bedroom. Yeah. And... It'd be nice if you put some pants on though, by the way. Well, this wasn't a pants mandatory uh, <laughs> event. So... pants tutorial. So you started off as uh, as an actor. My mum was actually doing some drama classes in uh, Box Hill, I think it was. And I would go after school and, and just hang out in the... It's like an aquatic centre. So I'd just go for a swim or dick about doing homework in the corner or something. And then um, one, uh, one night I was just sort of sat in the class <clears throat> in the corner and I went, oh, this is pretty boring, but I'll maybe you'll join in. And... Uh, Ended up uh, being one of the only, because it was an adults class, so and I was a kid, so I ended up joining in on this class, and they had some scene pieces which required, uh, a couple of scene pieces which required a child. And uh, so I just did a bit of that, and then um, one of the uh, friends of, of Michelle, Joe Rippon, was a casting agent and working on a show for Jonathan Schiff called Thunderstone, and she said, oh, you should come in and do an audition. So I said, okay, and I went in and did the audition and then uh, a couple of callbacks and I got the gig. So ended up being an actor for no reason, really. <laughs> and uh, yeah, three seasons later and 60-odd episodes, I, uh, I guess I was an actor at that point. Do you remember a point in time where you entertained people and you got that immediate reaction that made you go, I want to continue doing this? I don't actually remember the specific, like the th- the specific first time that that ever happened because I was so young as well and I was so new and I'd never done it before. Um, it was all a bit of a whirlwind, really. Um, I remember thinking it was pretty cool. I remember thinking this is fun and I can't believe people get paid to do this. This isn't this isn't a job. People do this for a career. Um, and then I guess <laughs> yes, people do it for a career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make however, pretend. However short or however long. Um, and I, I guess I I just enjoyed doing it and sort of figured out slowly that it is something that could potentially be a career. Um, as I was saying, it was I was still really young. I was still only like, you know, 14 or something at the time. I remember going into set and having more fun on set and everything. And because it's, because it's film and TV, it's not an immediate... It's not like being on stage where you get an immediate response and you know whether it went well or whether it worked or whether it was great or whether it was shit. Um, You're one of those kids who, when uh, like between takes, you were entertaining the crew. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I was always off playing playing with the slate or messing around with the camera or you know chatting to the lighting boys or I, you know I was far more interested in everything that was going on around me than what I probably should have been doing on camera. 
Um, Just dialing it in. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> but I, I guess there wasn't until the end of season one when I sat down and they had a a bit of a, like a screening for all the cast and crew of just sort of the rough cut of what was happening. And it wasn't until that point where I saw uh, like the opening credits and then you know, some of the footage and stuff all together that I went, oh, okay. I've just somehow been involved in the making of a television show. And up until that point, I had no idea really what it was all about. So I guess it was at that moment when I saw that, that it all became clear, the process, because I'd seen it from start to finish, from being cast to table reads to going away on like camps with the rest of the kids and doing like bonding, kind of just hanging out and getting to know each other. And what sort of, uh, what sort of, what sort of bonding do they do with you uh, as a well, kids uh, at, a, <laughs> at a drama school? <laughs> we, I remember going to this place called like, I think it was called Cumberland. Or Cumberland, <laughs> Cumberland, or it was like no, <laughs> making it sound like Michael Jackson's other ranch. It's not. I'm not. I'm <laughs> saying what what it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it was called Cumberland. Anyway, so from that point all the way through to to filming and rehearsals and 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 editing and doing um, ADR, so doing all the voiceover stuff, and then uh, and then watching it. But yeah, I guess it was at that point that I saw the the finished project and I went, oh, actually, this is pretty cool. So season two onwards was a bit clearer in my head as to what that is and what that was and how to, how to sort of do it, I guess. Well, what was it like at the screening to have that, uh, that immediate, I guess, uh, thing of, of an audience watching work that you'd done and, you know, was your mum there as well? She, I yeah, mean, probably, yeah. you know, feeling that it was, there was probably a, I imagine, um, validation or something there that you probably never experienced before. Mm. It's a strange feeling. Like it's definitely something that's very weird. And because it's you, you work on it for so very long and it's all out of sequence, it's all out of order. You know, you're doing things over and over again. You, you know, you're standing in front of a green screen and pretending that there's all these animals and explosions and things that aren't really there. And you kind of, it doesn't, especially to a kid, it doesn't really compute. And then when you see the final pro- the final product and you see it, you actually go, actually, this is really cool. And um, I really can't wait to go back and do the next season and try and do it better or, you know, make something that's pretty cool. And, you know, and when it was on sort of after school, like on Channel 10, I think, you know, every day or Monday to Friday, um, uh, sort of took that Spellbinders kind of slot there. And, um, you know, these guys made Ocean Girl and that was really popular uh, amongst the kids. So I guess doing that and then uh, and then actually getting feedback from like kids at school um, and stuff like that, which I was hardly over there because I was always on set. But when I was there, um, you know, getting recognised and all that kind of stuff that's associated with being on television. So you would get recognised. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess it's all that kind of stuff that really makes it feel a bit more real. Um, up until that point, it's not really... It's just a strange thing to do day in day out you know mm, what is that what is that feeling like of getting recognized there's a, you know there's a lot of people in the universe clamoring for fame and the spotlight yeah for the spotlight and the adoration of their peers mm. for whatever reason um, but I imagine it would be a pretty tedious thing after a little while I never really got it to the extremes of um, I mean like you you and I both got some friends who are pretty pretty well known and, and mm. you know we both know what it's like when you're trying to just go out and have a quiet beer with them and you know every every five seconds there's someone coming up going you're that guy oh you're from that show mm. 
Which is actually awesome because, you know, it means you've done great work and a great job and you've actually touched someone's life. But, yeah, but, but <laughs> sometimes... it means you can't go out and have a quiet beer with your mates, you know. Like yeah. it's, um, I, I, never, I, I never got to that level of it, obviously. At first it was kind of cool. It was just like, oh, yeah, cool. How are you doing, man? Yeah, no worries. I'll have a photo. Great. And then um, it got a little bit tedious and a bit kind of boring. And then um, especially having to go back to school. Mm. And um, and I went, you know, I went both ways. Like kids would kids would be, you know, thinking that it was really cool that I was doing this thing, and then other kids would just be dicks. So it's sort of, I I can't imagine what it would be like for someone in the, the super public eye. I don't think I'd be able to handle that very well mm. at all. Um, I was doing a a charity event called Love Your Sister, following uh, Sam Johnson around on a unicycle, and I remember being, and this was sort of like this is the only experience I've ever had in my life with having any sort of recognition, I guess, or that sort of fake fame. Faux fame. Um, yeah, faux, fame by association, I guess. Mm. Fame of being out in um, uh, Pemberton, which is in Southwest WA. And we were eating dinner in, a, in, in the hotel, which was putting us up for the night. And... The, the townsfolk, lovely as they were, were, um, you know, we we were something that they'd obviously been looking forward to having in their in their small town, and it's their their thing for the decade. Yeah, and after we'd uh, we'd had our um, had our little fundraising kind of desk set up, we were just sitting having dinner, and I and I watching these townsfolk just taking photos of us eating our meal and just and it was like we were I, I felt kind of like a caged animal Do I have like something in my teeth it was kind of it was kind of like we were in this sphere this bubble or something mm. and they thought that we couldn't see what they were doing and they were literally just standing there with their little phones or cameras taking photos of us meals. just eating and it sort of was like this is really a little bit uncomfortable, mm. like, and you know, it made me think, you know, what would it have been like for anyone who has sort of any level of, um, I guess, legitimate, I don't know, legitimate fame. Fame seems so illegitimate, but mm. you know, did you have any sort of weird? What was the weirdest thing that happened with you? You know, someone being a mega fan or two. Um. I remember getting a free upgrade on a flight from, we were filming out near um, Broken Hill, Wentworth, Perry, Sand Hills kind of area. And I can't remember where the flight is, but it was like a little rural one. And I was sitting with Gerard Kennedy, who uh, is, a, is a great old school kind of actor. I think he was in Homicide and, um, you know, all those kind of cool old cop shows and got to work with him. And he was sitting next to me on the, on the plane and, uh, the hostess recognized I was sitting next to him and recognized I'm, I was assuming uh, Gerard because he's, you know, acting elite at that, you know, at that kind of point. So I, uh, he, she was sort of leaning over, talking across both of us, going, oh, you know, oh, I love your show, da 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 um, You know, there's some space up the front of the plane. Do you want to come and sit up the front of the plane? And I just sat there and looked out the window and... Uh, and uh, and he sat there and nothing really happened. And then she uh, sort of said, no, do you, do you not want to? And I was like, oh, me? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, nah, no, nah, I'm all right. Thank you. He, um, he, he was an amazing man, Gerard Kennedy. He's still around. He had a glass eye. I remember he was a vegetarian as well. And they're the weird things you remember when you start piecing 
memories together. You start remembering a really strange... I can't remember what time we've got soccer today, but uh, I can remember that, that he was a vegetarian. So, you know, I guess that fame thing comes down to a, a level of uh, where you want to be, I guess. So if you are the kind of person who's going out to be an actor, to be famous, then you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons. Um or anything really to be recognised. I don't know um, if you're doing necessarily doing it for the wrong reasons. If you, as long as you're honest about it, mm. you know, like if you want to be famous, be famous, but just be honest with yourself about the fact that that's what you want. Don't trick yourself into being a pretentious. Well, I guess that's pretty much all reality TV these days, isn't it? They're yeah. not, they're not, you know, we celebrate, we celebrate actors, for example, Hollywood actors and, uh, A-list kind of actors because they're, for the most part, exceptional at their craft, which is performing and being a different person. But then we have this sort of huge wave of uh, reality mm. people who are famous for doing nothing. They're just because they're on TV, they're famous. I think, and I think one of the reasons why uh, we laud actors so so much is because they're also being forced to step up even higher now because there is this pool of you know almost sharks underneath them and and they can all you know a lot of these reality stars learn i guess film craft and so basic film craft is kind of transferable to basic acting in a sense you may Mm. not have technique but you understand how to do something to make something look good on camera Mm. so you know everyone in a sense can act in some degree now so it makes these other, you know, the, the, this this pool of actors that sits above that have to work even harder. Um, not that I'm thinking that, you know, Paris Hilton or uh, anyone like <laughs> hey, that is ever going to... She's probably been in more films than you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Two? One, one is more than... A, a Night in Paris? Is that the... Is that the uh... So you do Thunderstone and... That gives you a sort of, I guess, a platform to kind of launch a career if you so choose to take it. I mean, you know, you're 15 to what, 17-ish um, that you're on that. Yeah. You're probably earning more money than most kids ever earn. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're experiencing a, a degree of... I guess, fame and, you know, you're doing something that you're really enjoying doing. I mean, I remember when I was at school, you know, the only thing I looked forward to was drama class, plays, Mm. um, you know, art, writing, you know, we used to make fucking wrestling videos (laughs) (laughs) on the weekends, um, pretending to be our favorite wrestlers. And, but you got to do that every day. And you know you got to get paid. You got paid for it, and you got, it, it was it was it was something that was evolving into a career. Did mm. you find you know that family life changed, or social life changed, or anything like that as this is all evolving? I guess well because the normal thing for a kid to do is to go to school and have that kind of routine and structure. That that was far away from what I was doing. I was sort of sat there, you know, sometimes maybe for half a period and then I'd have to go to set and then come back and do maybe another like a music lesson in the afternoon and then like I was always going back and you know I mean we had a we had tutor on set so we'd have a little a little bus that we all had a desk and we'd all sit in there and 
supposed to do our schoolwork in. Um, so obviously that was really important for us to keep doing the school stuff to try and maintain that. I mean, obviously then hanging out with uh, a lot of grown-ups, um, being that, you know... Not that there are really any grown-ups in the film industry. Well, yeah, that's very true. It's kind of an illusion when just you're a kids. kid. Yeah. It, well, it's, you know, they were amazing, you know, and it wasn't until I, um, last year or the year before or something, did a kids' TV show myself as a standby postman and, and got to work with, with kids on a kids' show. And it quite, kind of brought back a lot of memories about how amazing it was and his experience... And I absolutely loved it. It was one of the, the most amazing, fun jobs and working with these kids and most of them had never been on a film set before and they were absolutely amazing. And it just kind of made me think that, you know, it, it, well, it took me back because I was now in the position where I had grown up on a film set doing that and now I was an adult, a parent adult, um, working with kids on a kid's show and, you know, that, that sort of circle had sort of, you know come come all the way around so um hanging out with a lot of adults as i was a kid you know you kind of grow up a little bit earlier in some regards but then you kind of don't grow up a lot in other regards so um just sort of my friendship circles i had a core kind of group of mates from school but a lot of my friends were were grown-ups a lot of my friends were, were film crew and you know now i'm 15 years on for example i'm still I'm working on colleagues with with people that I worked with as a kid. So I was a kid, they were a grown-up, and now I'm a grown-up and they're just a little bit more grown-up and we're still working side by side. It's an amazing industry, it really is. And it's very, in Australia, it's very small. It seems big, but you can pretty much not walk onto any set, be it a, a TV show or a film or a commercial or anything like that, and not know a lot of people. Like, there's very few new people um, popping up on sets that you don't know um so that sort of changed i guess the dynamic of how i was working with you know other fa like family and friends and stuff like that um being more interested in hanging out with with grown-ups mm. <laughs> people my own age Did you have a girlfriend while you were doing any of that uh i had a girlfriend from i think over one of the seasons how was that? Like 16 to 17 or something, I think. Yeah, it was all right. You know, it was it was a, it was a 16-year-old girlfriend. It was it was, you know, what it was. You think it's the world then when you're a kid and mm. um you virginity to this, this girl? I did. I did. Yeah. We both did actually. You like light some candles and Yeah. Yeah. A bath with rose petals. Did you really? You know, roll out the couch. <laughs> the Murphy bed comes down <laughs> in the trailer. I guess that probably would have been like you know, there's there's a bit of clout there though because you're you know sleep with a TV star. Well, yeah. I guess the you know there's also the thing is I you're like as you, as you become someone in the public eye and as I was saying earlier, you know you and I have both got people who are quite prevalent in the public eye that we you kind of surround yourself by people who well, surround yourself with people who don't really give a shit about it. And they tend to be the friends who are there mm. the whole way through, you know, the people who are kind of trying to be friends with, with people in the public eye because they're famous, for example, they're not really around for very long, but being that we work in the industry and we grow up in the industry, we don't really see fame the same way as everybody else. So it takes a lot 
for me to be starstruck, for example, like working with high caliber international or domestic actors, it's, it's the highest caliber of person you've worked with. Highest caliber of person. Mm. Or, the, you know, you respect the most as, a, as an actor or a director. Um, I guess one of the coolest ones was working on um, uh, this film. I don't even know if it got a cinema release uh, called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I worked on that with you. You did. Yeah. You did. Um, and it was produced by Guillermo del Toro. And he did... He ended up uh, directing some of it as well, I think. He did. There was a little bit of a leadership <laughs> spill. There was a bit yeah. of a, uh, <laughs> a Labour Party... first-time director. ...leadership spill. Um, but that was pretty amazing because, you know, coming in from a design world now these days and Pan's Labyrinth is just exceptional and visually incredible and... Featuring Doug Jones. Your mate. Yeah. Yes. Um to even be working on a project that's attached to him was something pretty special. I mean, <laughs> I was more excited about that than the fact that, you know, Katie Holmes was in it and Tom Cruise would rock up and, you know, that to me wasn't it really... Was chopper. Yeah, <laughs> get to the chopper. Get to the chopper, Katie. But, um, yeah, but I mean, that, that was the other thing that was quite strange because obviously Katie Holmes is coming from that A-list celebrity mm. world. And they had that little girl running around Siri. as well. Siri. That they've named uh, the the mobile the phone um, Suri. thing after, but she was lovely, and and that was that thing where Australian crews are very different to international crews because we don't we don't really do celebrity on set. Mm. Everybody's a handshake and a mate, and how you going, and we don't kind of treat them with the same kind of fake reverence. Mm. Um, so. It, it breeds a kind of comfortable environment for actors to perform in as well. So I imagine it would be similar in. The States, there's just probably, you know, you've got all the unions and there's probably a lot more bureaucracy that goes on. Mm. But I imagine the actual crew would probably be pretty down to earth as well. Mm. Um, I just know, speaking, yeah, from working here with Australian crew and international actors that come over and I work with them, be it from the UK or America or um, Asia, and they always comment on how lovely and how how great Australian film crews are and how mm. warm and welcoming. And, and you know, we I would be out there at lunchtime throwing the Frisbee with Katie Holmes's daughter. Like, it was just a, a weird... Mm. For, for her and for her minder and, you know, for that, that, that was probably something that she found quite strange because we didn't really care that that's who she was. To us, she's just a little girl who, you know, was bored. So, you know, you'd throw the Frisbee or hang out and do whatever if we were there. And then, you know, we'd jump in the car and go off and do, do our job. So um, that fame caliber kind of doesn't really leave me starstruck at all, I guess. No, and there's, there's, there is that thing like, you know, Jeffrey Rush just hanging out in Camberwell. Yeah. I remember I used to work at the Rivoli and he'd just come in on his own, mm. watch film couple of people might oh, actually i do remember one time he came in and there was a, a, a school that had come in to see a film and both their films finished at the same time and he did get a little bit uh, swamped but otherwise i mean i think there's uh, you know the 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 positive byproduct if you like of the tall poppy thing is that i guess to a certain degree no one gives a fuck yeah um in terms of who you are or they just, you know, if you, as long as you're a good person yeah. and you're not annoying anyone. Mm. Um, if you're not being Kanye West. Yeah, and, you know, people will point or, or whatever. Mm. Um, 
but I don't think people will annoy or uh, unlawfully approach celebrities in, in inverted commas. Mm. Um, Most people sit there and just sort of whisper from a distance yeah. and go, is that that guy? Is that the dude from that show? Yeah. Is that... Oh. And then they've got a story to dine out on for yeah. a little while. Yeah. It's generally not you know, if it's at a pub or a club or something and someone's had a few drinks that they get the mm. cojones to go up and... Swanee! photo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Swanee. You better have a good year this year. Have you got him in your super coach team? I need to do some work on that. Have you ruxed your team yet? Have you? Not really. I actually took a screenshot of my team about two weeks ago. Just and to see went... how far it had changed. Well, not to see how far it would change, but just in case I did Ruxin it, and then I would have a reference to come back and go, here is my unruxin team. I haven't watched any of the NAB Cup, so I don't know. Melbourne nearly got up yesterday over the Bulldogs, didn't they? Melbourne did get up. Right. They were up the whole game, and they almost fucked it up. In the last quarter. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were, it was, what was it, 52-7 to 7 at, at halftime or something. I did remember saying to you, <laughs> I've watched them lose it by the third. Yeah. So what they, what they end up they, winning? They won by, by seven points. In seven the end. points in the end, yeah. and they were how far up the uh, What's that, the 40, 45 points? Holy shit. So they've got... That was quick maths for a Sunday morning. They've got stamina After then. a night on the beers. That's what, a, that's what a good Jewish education gets you. Maths on hangover. The ability to do 52 minus 7. 45. <laughs> and for it to... Well, <laughs> I just did it. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't listening. <laughs> paying attention to you. I was having a conversation to you. Uh, so you you... Somehow in there you've transitioned from acting into crewing and going behind the camera mm-hmm. um i don't know that was a really weird segue i don't know how you go from maths to that but we'll roll you with just it. say segue and then do it yeah and then i and then i pointed out the segue yeah so now we're talking about that which is you know probably won't make the final cut of the show um so <laughs> so you go from uh you go behind the camera camera which seems like you know, you don't hear a lot about actors that go that way. You hear a lot about crew that somehow end up in front of the camera. This guy was a director. Although, I, actually, no, I guess you do hear a lot about mm. actors that become directors. Mm. But you rarely hear about actors that become standby propsmen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible director, that's why. No. Right. <laughs> I, um, I guess there's just... Uh, it was kind of a, a circumstance thing. Um, the guy who was the standby propsman on Thunderstone... Um, Tim Disney. His... I mean, what what is it, what is a standby propsman? Ah, so basically, a standby propsman is uh, the title for so every every department, be it like makeup or uh, hair or ward, like costume and wardrobe or art department, has an onset representative, and they're responsible for being on set during the filming process, looking after their respective departments. So standby wardrobe is to be on set and, and look after all the wardrobe on set. So when, when we're filming, so standby props is basically the on set art department. So the guys will come in and dress the sets, give me the props, um, all that kind of stuff, then head off to the next set. And then I'm responsible to be there on set all day, looking after the props, um, the set, uh, the continuity of the props, you know, giving it to the actors, resetting, um, dressing the frame, sort of, you know, chatting to the DP and the director and, uh, and you know, all the while trying to deliver what the designer wants at the same time. So um, 
it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty full on, but it's fun and it's extremely creative and it it's very uh, it's a very um, communal kind of process because you know you're working with a lot of people with a lot of different goals, but sort of the same vision um, and a lot of it's people managing and a lot of it's you know um, dealing with actors who are trying to perform and and do a role and do what they need to do but at the same time I need to say to them you know can you just mime eating this because I only have you know six wheat picks so can you just pretend to eat the wheat picks on this take and then Small when budget. we turn around yeah <laughs> but it's stuff like that you know and then that's resetting it and and making sure they're okay or if it's like a weird prop we're teaching them how to use it and then um looking after it and you know what is a weird prop Oh, Give me an example. Oh, it could be anything like a, a, a building a piss rig for a show I'm doing next week. <laughs> Believe it or not, not my first piss rig. Um, so, how, how does one construct a piss rig? Well, it d- depends on the situation. Uh, if it's like a physical standing there pissing out and you need to see the stream, it's a different, you know, you can use like an IV bag with colored water in it and they can just squeeze it under their arm like a bagpipe. Um, Showing some people behind the curtain that they probably don't want to see. No. <laughs> or uh, so if, next time you're watching Offspring, yeah, and you see that piss. guy taking a piss. Yeah. I don't know any of the characters' names in Offspring. No. So that yeah, that's basically what a standby propsman does. Um, so Tim Disney was the standby propsman on Thunderstone when I was a kid, and his cousin Lockie Snell was the assistant. And Lockie was uh, I was at a party at his house, um, and. He was not drinking because you're underage. No, so this is quite a few years later. I was I was eighteen, nineteen, and uh, so drinking because you're of legal age. Correct. Yeah, um, I wasn't drinking underage at all. Child actors never drink. No. no. Um, uh, so he I mean, said there's a Macaulay job. Culkin. Yeah. I <laughs> know. <He's... laughs> oh, we've left Kevin at home with all the heroin. So that is actually a deleted scene. In, uh, in, in Home Alone, <laughs> him putting the, ru- the, rubber, and the then... rubber band around after, around his arm. Well, that's after he's taken the heroin. That's why he runs around screaming. Ah, because he's tourniquet his arm and had a smack a horse. Well, no, because he thinks he saw a unicorn. <laughs> Maybe he did. Maybe uh, so have. anyway, Lockie said, hey, look, there's a job. There's an assistant on Secret Life of Us. What do you reckon? I went, yes. I was like, fun. Bada boom, bada bing. Here we are. You're in the ring. Correct. I mean, you said something before about how, um, how you know, when you, were, when you were in the midst of the acting world and you had a girlfriend and, you know, you're surrounded by peers and colleagues and people and friends who were genuine that you were doing what you loved to do. What was it about that that you loved doing? And then, you know, how have you, how do you sort of transition into a new love, I guess, with art department and standby props and... I guess I love... Um, I guess I couldn't really say that I loved acting. Like, I wasn't... I was very lucky and I was in a position where a lot of people spend their whole lives trying to get to, which was being paid to be an actor at a very young age. So I never really... I kind of took that for granted, I guess. I never really understood the effort and the work required. I kind of just fell into it. Um, but then as I kind of tried to keep making it um, a career, uh, I was very fortunate for pretty much most of the auditions I went to, I'd get the gig. So I was very lucky in that regards. Um, and I didn't really study it. Um, a lot of people go off and study acting and do all that kind of stuff and still don't really get you know, the uh, get to where they want to be. Yes, they do. <laughs> 
Um, just ask any Hollywood waitress. Uh, so, or me. <laughs> so I guess doing it as a job, when you start doing something that's a passion as a job and to rely on it as money, um, I guess that's when it becomes a bit tedious and you know you end up having to get a bar job or you know a cafe or you need it's almost like you're funding a lifestyle which is a career so it very quickly kind of realized that it wasn't so much the acting that I loved but it was the filmmaking process Um, so once I kind of got over there was times I'd stand on set and I'd see you know some actors playing roles that I could very easily have done I'd get a little bit kind of forlorn about it and a little bit kind of oh shit maybe I should have you know, not given it up maybe I should go back to it um, but I realised very quickly that there's so much um, on offer within the art department and making the process from my end of town um, that I loved and I really do genuinely love because you're creating a world you know you're making something um for the actors to play in you know you're you're responsible for creating these imagination lands where that's where people get lost in you know you can't really love a harry potter if you didn't have hogwarts you know or all these other wonderful places so if he was just sitting in a suburban house it wouldn't really be what it is favorite design right now go favorite design right now yeah. as in what's the favorite designed film that, that i've watched recently any, any time oh any time first one that comes there oh man uh First There's one. so many. T- uh, Go. I'd have to say Edward Scissorhands. Um, a lot of the early Tim Burton stuff, and also uh, very recently uh, Hotel Budapest. So any of the Wes Anderson stuff. I actually found a Wes Anderson design book in uh, LA when I was there a couple of weeks ago. And, oh, awesome! And it was so beautiful. It's all from Darjeeling Limited and all the way up. So yeah, Wes Anderson, and I think his name's Bo Bo Welch. Is, uh, did a lot of design for Tim Burton. Mm. But um, I think at the moment I'm heading towards the Wes stylized kind of stuff. I really, really love it. Well, that's great because I'm actually writing something that, you know, could be designed in that way. Oh, there you go. So, Should we chat about this know. on camera? Or, uh, on on what camera. Do you, what do you call this? On microphone? On, the- on, on air. On, on, on air. On record. On the record. So if I just say off the record and then say something, technically it doesn't count, even though it's recorded. What? Right? <laughs> uh, so, I mean, tell me a little bit more about what it is that you love. What is it personally that, you know, that really gets you going, you know, tight in the pants when it comes to the design world? I guess it's for, for me to sit down and watch something that gets me excited. It has to have... It has to have first and foremost a very good script because without that you don't have anything. What do you define as a good script? Are you talking about the world that the script exists in? I'm just talking about the very simple talking of two people. I'm just talking about words because at the end of the day you're watching. Yeah, you're, at the end of the day you're watching people talk. Mm. You know, that's what you're doing. You're watching or people have a conversation. If you're listening to a podcast, you're listening. You're to listening people to people talk. talk, and you don't get to look at. How beautiful we all look in here today. Without our pants on. Yeah. Oh, you are so pasty. We've For just come out of hear, summer. How are you so white? My brother has just taken his shirt off as well as his pants. So now he's just so, naked. Yeah. So 
<laughs> I guess we should probably both take our shirts off as well. So anyone who's looking for some studio time, call. <laughs> it's very, very professional. Free call, 1-800. No pants. Yeah, so I guess coming back to that, you know, a really good script. That's your starting point. And then, then after that, it becomes visual because it's a visual medium and uh, it has to look really schmick, you know. And I'll often forgive a film which falls down in a lot of areas, be it script or performance or direction or you know in that kind of stuff but if it's visually stunning i'll get caught up in that world i think in order to capture my attention in a film it has to open and be absolutely stunning i see what you're saying so it has to be beautiful straight away um and even if the story is slow and even if things take a while to get to where they need to go as long as it's beautiful you'll keep me there for a lot longer and because i know how all the things are done and how it's made and there's no more illusion. You know, the magic of movie is very, you know, it's very transparent to me these mm. days because I've worked in it for so long. So I know how things are done. That's what I do for a job is pretend and smoke and mirrors. So for a film to really grab me and capture me, it has to be beautiful, you know, mm. and that's the world. And that's what I, the why I love doing it. I think the magic of movies for us now is when you do get captivated to a point where you're not thinking about, Mm. the grip that's standing next to the camera or yeah. the bit of exposition dialogue or yeah. you know any of that sort of stuff that we've learned over a period of time mm. um or when you see a door open and it doesn't close and you go yeah i'd be lying on the ground holding that door open out of frame so you just you mm. know it's just so easily ruined like, and it's very it has to be a very good film to really or a good tv show because tv is probably better than most of the films i've seen lately so mm. um but yeah, guess that's why. That's why what? I loves it. Ah, right. Didn't actually say why you loved it. You said what you love. Creating the world. You you love creating the world. Mm. Mm. What's the point where? Because I mean, for me as a as a director or producer, there's always a point in the process where it's actually where everything comes together. You, you, you know, like yeah. Yeah, it's in the editing room, actually, usually when you start layering in like the music, you know, the cuts done and you can see it all, that it's all come to life. But there's that point where it actually goes from feeling like uh, a project to feeling like a show. Mm. Um, is there, I don't know. Is there something similarly in you know, what you do where it's like you've, you've mapped out the blueprint mm. and now here's actually the world. We've created the world. I guess it's a lot earlier in the process because um, we we try and get as much of it done before cameras roll. So I guess once the cameras have rolled up and you've just had a take, at that moment when you're looking at the split and you're seeing your world, the actors, you know, hair and makeup's world on the on the actor you know the costume from wardrobe the the lighting from the lighting department the dop the grip with the dolly moves what you know all that stuff when that all starts coming together and you see that first take on the split that's when you go ah good <laughs> it's working standby gig yeah it was on secret life, on secret life. Yeah, assisting Lockie. yeah remember if you're like the first time that you were not the assistant oh uh Um, no, I have to check my CV, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, I started, obviously, as you move up, you start doing kind of just small bits. So I think I did some casual stuff 
um, like just some daily stuff on mm. some shows, but I actually can't remember where what what shows they were. So I would have to check that. Mm. Yeah. Were you nervous? Yeah, a little bit. Only because I didn't yeah. want to fuck up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that's why you're always nervous. Yeah, isn't yeah. I just don't want to fuck up. So occasionally, not so much anymore, but occasionally, if I if I'm looking at a scene that's there's a hundred extras, there's dinner set, there's like, if there's all this stuff going on with massive, you know, all rigs or things that I have to do and big resets and, you know, if, you know, if there's, if there's some sort of lack of communication between the director and, and myself about what exactly they want, you know, or the actor wants something different or the DP wants something different on big scenes, I still get a bit nervous. Um, but you just have to kind of just take a moment, have a breath and go, okay, let's just work out exactly what everybody wants and then I'll help you facilitate that. You know, I can give you this. Like if the, if the director all of a sudden goes, do you have a three-legged donkey in the truck? I go, no, I've got a four-legged horse, but I can cut one leg off and paint it and make it look like a donkey. I assume this is a real life yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. So you've actually got an abattoir. Not anymore. No, I ran out of horses. Yeah. Oh, you could have got some from the Melbourne Cup. They were they seemed to be just giving them away. When was that? That was ages ago. Mm. Was, uh, yeah. Oh, what time's the Grand Prix? Do you know what time the Grand Prix is today? No. Oh, the Grand Prix is on two, today two for anyone uh, anyone listening to this in the future or in the past or in the past. If you're if you're listening to this in the past, well done on inventing that time machine, <laughs> or good work, Al, for finally finishing your time machine. If you could go, if you, if you could say something to yourself now to go back, if you, if you were to invent a time machine about your sentence and go back, (laughs) I'm just trying to get a linear time frame here. If you were to create a time machine, if present, no, so future Al creates a time machine Mm -hmm. and goes back, what would, what would Al like Al who'd travel back to know? So what would you want to tell yourself? What piece of advice would you tell yourself in the past? Is there a bit of advice that something you've learned mm. that you would like to go back and know beforehand? Like, So is there something that I currently know that I would like? Like, don't drive that car or don't invest in IBM stock or, you know. Don't invest in IBM stock. Well, not recently. Like well, yeah. Invest in Apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of like a modern day, um, back to the future thing where he gives him the sports, the almanac. almanac. Yeah. Do yeah. They're doing a triple stock. at the Astor. Really? Yeah. They're doing all three films. That's, that's going to go. That's gone ne- next year. When are they closing the Astor down? I feel like I heard someone saying something about it being saved. Nah, they've but, done it a couple of, they've saved it a couple of times, yeah. but they haven't. Um, what, what advice would I give? Would I like to give my, my past, the past Al? Part, what would, what would present slash future Al like to tell past Al? I mean, I know this is going to sound a bit wanky, but I feel Never like... let go of your dreams, Al. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that because I, because I, I don't let go of my dreams. Oh. So I've already done that. Oh. No, I, in all seriousness though, I'm, I, I, I actually can't think of anything that I would any advice that I would want to give myself because, you know, everything sort of leads to where we are now. Mm. And, you know, despite momentary concerns or momentary things that happen, I'm pretty content with my life. Where you're at. Where I'm at. So as boring as that is, um, 
Yeah, it's very boring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I've... Uh, don't barrack for Melbourne. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> or go and watch Liverpool in Istanbul in 2005. Go to the game. Go to the game. Um, don't sit at home and don't leave at half time. Did you leave at half time? No, no, but a lot of people would have left at half time. Your did, team's you losing know, 3 0. No, I was watching it. Uh, I remember watching it. I was watching it at a mate's place. Um, who was a Milan supporter, and yeah. uh, and at halftime he was the smuggest San Francisco fart-smelling fucker. I got a hybrid. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the game, when uh, well, not even the end of the game, but when Alonso stepped up to take the penalty, um, then got the rebound that made it three all after we had that seven-minute patch of scoring three goals to get it back on level. I was literally rolling around on the floor of his. Uh, parents house laughing at so seven scores were level in the second half yeah 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 and then we won in a penalty shootout what about you what would present or future nathan say to past nathan if given the opportunity to go back um oh there's all there oh, there's so much is it just one thing well what's the standout it probably would be just uh that's a really hard question why yeah, now I understand why you stumbled. Yeah, it I is... mean, I guess, I guess uh, it'd be just, just be a little bit nicer to people. Yeah. Um. No, I wouldn't change that. <laughs> you just continue to be a fuckhead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. That's your fucking problem. Um, I don't know, man. I'd probably, uh, yeah, it'd be something really simple that would probably make my future financial self like maybe invest all that money from Thunderstone in something. Mm. What 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 did happen to the money from Thunderstone? I don't know. <laughs> I get, well, I mean... Well, I invested I, in IBM. By, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Eastern. And Bill Cosby. Yeah. What do you think the meaning of life is? Don't know. Don't care. I just think, just don't be a shit bloke. It's probably just the best. Like, we don't know. We don't know. So why, you know, you can spend the whole time you're here, which is not very long, trying to work out what it is or just make the most of every day and don't be a shit bloke. Mm. It's pretty easy, really. No one fights wars or, you know, kills people or, you know, does anything if everyone's just not a shit person. Mm. It's very simple. So I'm not a big fan of the old organized religion. So you don't believe in God? Nah. Do you believe in some form of? Are you a, are you an evolutionist or are you a? Um, do you believe in some higher form or do you believe? What, what is what's your take on anything? I honestly, I honestly don't know what's going on out there. So I just think it's a better philosophy to just don't be a shit person. Mm, so that's kind of like agnostic. Well, I mean, there's probably some. There's probably something going on out there. I'm sure there's something, but I don't know what it is. So I think you can you can send yourself batshit crazy trying to work it out, or you can become fanatical and murder a lot of people in the name of your religion or your god. Um, but if you didn't do that, then the world would be a slightly better place, I guess. Hmm. It seems that religion seems to give some kind of solace for the few, but destruction for the many. Mm. 
there was there's a there's a uh, there's a quote I was reading. People who seek religion are looking for someone um, to follow who has the answer, um, but people who are spiritual are looking to experience whatever the answer is. Mm. I don't know if I you know I don't, I'm not sure where I sit with that, but um, yeah, I think that. Certainly people of our generation, I think religion is becoming, is evolving into a less fundamentalist kind of thing mm. and more of an, you know, this is how we want to experience the world and how we experience life. And people mm. are soul searching and there seems to be some sort of, you know, collective acceptance that, you know, maybe we've outgrown those ways of thinking. I mean, if we started a religion today, there's three of us here. Mm. If we started a doctrine of belief, then, you know, in many thousands of years, that could be... Well, Scientology did that. Yeah, you but know. that's, you know... People, and people are looking at them going, they're fucking crazy because of all these things they're believing. I'm going, if you tried to start Catholicism today mm. or Judaism or if you tried or Hindu, if you tried to start any of those religions, people would think you're mental. Yeah. There's, like this dude walked on water and he, you know, did all this shit. It's like, mate, it's just as crazy. It's just because it's been around for a lot longer. It doesn't make it any less different to Scientology or, mm. you know, Mormons or, you know, anything really. It's just... If you were at a pub and someone gave you a glass of wine and said, that was water a minute ago, you'd go, fuck off. Yeah, I'd drink it. Yeah, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy into the fact that it was that it, it had recently been water. I'd say it might have had water in it, mm. but it's grapes, and grapes need water to grow, so there's probably water in it. Mm. I think th- I think that you know all of that stuff has great lessons in it, mm. but to take it so literally, oh, yeah. is you know completely at, at the core of all of those. At the core of pretty much every religion is probably just some key kind of guidelines to live by which are, if you just looked at those, like, mm. say, for example, you know, the Ten Commandments. They're basically just ten rules to not being a shit bloke. Yeah. <laughs> don't kill fuckers, you know? <laughs> don't murder, don't rape, don't steal. Awesome. Call it a day. That's all you need to do. You don't need, you know, you don't need all these stories and all these fables and parables. You don't need all this shit to, to try and work out, you know, how to live your life and, you know, the Jesus and, you know... What would Jesus think? And you know, oh, da, 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 da. it's like, mate, who fucking cares? We don't know if he's here or real. And mm. if you believe in it, by all means, believe in it. But don't shove it down people's throats and don't murder people as a result. There's also something to be said that you know, living from a place of fear, which is a lot of these. I yeah, mean, if Judaism's you don't do this, you'll same, go to hell, or you know. Yeah, you know, living um, from that space is like seems somewhat counterproductive to. Mm living a happy life i was raised a catholic i went to a catholic school but you know sort of in my teen years i kind of went oh, i don't know about this and mm. and now i just sort of you know i've been exposed to all manner of different religions and you know through you know yourself and through some other mates you know uh been privy to some some pretty special uh kind of events in the you know in a in a, in a jewish tradition sense and you know, in traditional sense and i think for me the traditions of religions are kind of pretty cool and I think, yeah, yeah I, I, I would agree with that i think that's a great way of identifying yeah. with, you know with a family and a community and it brings people together and yeah. it, it unifies people but it does it in a way which is not murdering and and blowing up children and 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 shooting people in the name of something that people don't 
believe in. I, yeah. mm. I guess we're very lucky in Australia because we have such a multicultural society. We have people from all around the world that generations like myself don't really understand why, how, you know, don't understand intolerance, you know. And I think that's a, a, a good thing and it's also a bad thing because we don't, you know, we don't, we don't understand why people have a problem with two people of the same sex being in love and getting married and having a child. Mm. We don't understand why we don't understand why people have a problem with, with people who wear a silly hat and walk around the streets after sundown. Like we don't, we don't understand why that's a problem, but in some other corners of the globe where they don't experience that multicultural society, they don't understand and they don't sort of, they're not as forgiving about other cultures and, mm. and other people's beliefs or the fact that some people just don't have beliefs. <laughs> well, I think not having a belief is still having a belief. Yeah. Like belief in nothing is still a belief in it's, something. It's still a belief, yeah. It's great. There's great, um, another great thing that I was reading, you know, is that um, darkness doesn't actually exist. Darkness is just the absence of light mm. because you can't create darkness. You can only remove light. Mm. And so that's kind of like believing nothing is not actually believing, is still believing something. Mm. Um, well, what, you know, I mean, you look at, what we would consider empty space around us. Mm. The gap between you and I sitting here, we would consider that empty space, but it's actually not. It's chock-a-block full of things. It's full of yeah. molecules and atoms and things that are occurring, but we just consider that empty space. So I, I don't know. I guess I guess just if people stop being shit blokes, then we'd, we'd get a lot further in this world. You know, <laughs> We're going to go eventually. The sun's going to go kaput so we've got a finite amount of time granted it's a long time but i think uh you know it's a we have a ticking clock on this planet we really do so we don't need to spend our time killing people in the name of our beliefs because they don't believe in the same thing it's mm. just it's insanity do you believe in an afterlife not really no reincarnation no i just i just honestly is it just worm food I just think that's it. I just think we. I think it's better to believe in the fact that we're here now. This is a, this is a certainty. We are here now. This mm. is a certainty. Believe in that. You know, believe in the fact that today is today and tomorrow may not be here. So that just seems like a more logical way to live your life mm. instead of living it. You know, in fear or guilt or hope that there's something else better waiting. Why not make today better? You know, I'm not there to to sway people that. They, what they believe is wrong or right or you know I'm I just think that everybody should be accepting of what people believe if it's not hurting anybody you know sure believe about Allah and he's the one true God but don't blow people up over it or you know sure believe that God is God and you're a Catholic but let let two men get married like you know what what is that it's completely irrelevant anyway, we have we have a show a reality show where whole heap of chicks fight over a guy and at the end of it they get married we really do not give a shit about this you know the sanctity of marriage in society we truly don't and in that in the bachelor we're taking the piss out of that so why why can we do that and that's okay because it's between a man and a woman but two men or two women who truly do love each other and they want to get married how is that not okay like mm. uh, it, it, it's just i don't know just things that really and I've, we've spoken about this in the past about i don't understand how people are, you know aren't accepting of you know of jewish 
culture or of Jews or something like that. And and they and I don't get it. You know, we were up in America and chatting to someone from the deep south, and you know, you were concerned about how you would go in mm. an area like that where civil rights and you know, there's a lot of kind of skinhead, you know, neo-Nazi mm. kind of parties and things floating around in this particular area. And I just, I didn't, I didn't understand how that was a thought. Like, I didn't even think about that as being a thing. You've got a girlfriend, someone that you knew when you were in Thunderstone. Mm. And then you've kind of navigated this career. And, you know, being in the entertainment industry can be quite difficult. You know, you've found a way to make a relationship work whilst maintaining hmm. um, working in the film industry? It took a, it took a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it, it's um, by default, you know, you're working, and I don't think it's film industry specific. I think a lot of other industries, say like the medical profession, you know, with, with nurses mm. uh, or doctors who uh, don't work out of the practice but work in, say, a hospital, for example. You know, maybe law, mm. um, situate you know industries where it requires you to to do really long hours and really long days, really long weeks, really long months, really long years. It's hard because you don't you know you finish a twelve odd hour day and you get home, you're exhausted. You know you don't want to do it. You want to go to bed. Mm. So you know your weeks are. You know your your time becomes very precious, and you don't get a lot of it. You know, and when you, what time you do have, you're generally pretty pretty knackered from from work. So, it seems to be a lot of people in the film industry have a few cracks at marriage. There tends to be quite a, <laughs> quite a few people who've had a, had an ex uh, ex partner uh, going through. You know, and I, you try dating people inside, you know, within the industry, thinking that they'd get it. Mm. But obviously they're in the industry, so they're working the same crazy hours. So, but then you've got to, on the flip side of that, you've got to find somebody who, if they say they're got a big boy job, like do a nine to five or something like that, a grown up job, as we call it. <laughs> um, if you found someone like that, they probably wouldn't quite understand why you're away for fifteen hours a day mm. and why on Friday night you don't want to go out for drinks after work because you're exhausted. You know, you need to sleep. Or you need to wind, unwind, or you need to come home and you need to keep working. <laughs> you need to come home. You need to edit. You need to do your script breakdowns. You need to work out your shot lists. You need to source props. You need to build things. You need to, you know, it, it's it's all consuming. You know, it really is. And and there's you know a high degree of burnout. But thankfully, when you're not working, uh, being most people of freelance these days, especially in Melbourne, you do get chunks of time off. So. Yes, you might work like a madman for three months, but then you might get a month off. So, you know, you kind of take the work while it's there and then if it's not, then you've got, you know, a forced holiday, I guess. Mm. And but, so... Sorry, but yeah, so it's I guess just with that relationship thing, it makes, you know, you, you have to prioritise the time that you get together and you have to try and make it special. And nine times out of ten, you just you curl up curl up on the couch and cuddle and fall asleep watching a movie but uh, you know you're together pointing out the floors yeah <laughs> you're together at least so that's good yeah and so you met your girlfriend actually on Thunderstone yes yes we were both kid actors together on the same show and uh, she went off to do another show for a few years so she kept acting and I went off to crew and then we kind of worlds came back together and collided and 
uh, started seeing each other and it became, uh, it was kind of cool and it was fun and we kind of thought, why don't we give this a go? This is pretty cool, like a pretty special thing. And, and so we've sort of kept doing it, which is great. So she understands what the film industry is like because she's been there. But she um, has a, uh, a grown-up job, so she has that sort of structure of the a normal working week, in a sense. Has she dabbled or toyed with the idea of ever going back to the film industry? Um, I think she has. It's hard to to completely get over, I think, especially when you grow up in it, because it's kind of it becomes a case of what it's what you know best, mm. and it's where you are quite comfortable. So I think she's. I think she hasn't sort of walked away from it completely. But, you know, and I understand that. You know, I had times where I would think maybe I should go back and do acting and what would it be like if I did. But I guess that's sort of each to their own. I know, you know, a lot of you were talking earlier about actors who'd gone on to become directors and things like that. Like Jeff Walker, I'd worked with as a kid. He's now a uh, an amazing director and uh, he's he's working all the time and doing great things. And I don't, I don't know many people who'd be able to do a transition quite as well as he did. Um, but then you get the other side, like you know Sullivan Stapleton, for example. You know, he's a grip. <laughs> so he's now three hundred. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it, it, you know it works a lot both ways. Um, as long as you're in, for for the most part, for most of the people in the industry, as long as you're working in the process and you're involved in creating something, it's fine. You know, as long as you're creatively making shit, you know, just just making shit. Mm. I mean, for me, that's what it's all about. For me, that's what I guess life is about: mm. is creating, and in whatever form that is for the individual, you know, creating mm. shows for us, creating life, um, you know, creating a garden. Mm. Um, whatever, whatever it may be, um, I think that's what it's all about: making shit. Yeah, you know, that's how we evolve. We evolve by creating. Mm. Mm. It seems like a good place to wrap things up. Um, what's 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 next for you? Where are you? Where does your creativity evolve to from standby props? Can you give directing a crack? <laughs> give me a script. <laughs> um. Uh, I I guess going into doing more design, um, sort of doing standby props as a job and then doing design on projects um, that I don't get paid for. Um, I guess ultimately that's what I'd like to do because obviously the designer is the key creator of the world and uh, that would be that would be an ideal place to be, I guess. But until then, I've got to learn how to draw. And... Uh, <laughs> We'll paint. go to some life drawing classes. Or paint or something. <laughs> some sort of artistic skill. People still use MS Paint? Um, no, there's this other one, though, which is similar. Photoshop? Core, no. Um, it's something similar to Paint. I use this one called SketchUp, which is like uh, AutoCAD for dumb shits. I don't know what any of those words you just said mean other than dumb and shit. Hmm. Oh, this has been coming up next. Uh, Thank you to everyone who has listened to this inaugural show. Uh, Hopefully it's the first of many. And if it's not, then you've probably not heard any of this um, because it never saw the light of day. Can something that's... Future self can still go back and listen, remember? That's true. Future self could take this back and say, deliver this podcast. What makes you silly? 
What makes me silly? Yeah, what makes you silly? What makes you do silly things? What makes me do silly things? Yeah. Alcohol? Alcohol. What's the silliest thing you've ever done on alcohol? Uh, oh, shit. Probably something that I don't remember because I'd had too much. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it my 20s? 20s. <laughs> <laughs> that was the silliest thing I ever did on alcohol. <laughs> Well, there you have it. That was the first episode of Coming Up Next, if you made it this far. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't make it this far, well, you're not listening anymore, so um, don't know why I'm addressing you. Tune in next week for Coming Up Next with Michaela Bannis. You may know her from McLeod's Daughters, uh, Always Greener, Upper Middle Bogan, uh, and hopefully one day soon, a little show called Sweatshop. So you can tune in next Tuesday, and every Tuesday after that, to hear me, talking, rambling, doing what I do. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll see you next time.